The upstate of South Carolina is filled with many individuals, businesses, and organizations that are collectively helping to shape the upstate as a leading place to live, learn, do business, and raise a family. My name is Dean Hebel, and I'm the executive director of Ten at the Top, a regional nonprofit organization with the mission of fostering collaboration and partnership around issues that impact economic vitality and quality of life. Thanks for joining me for Upstate Gems, our podcast where I chat with upstate influencers to learn about their journey and how they are making a difference in the upstate. I am delighted to welcome for this session, Joan Herlong, an upstate realtor who is owner of Joan Herlong and Associates Sotheby's. Oh, I said that wrong, Joan. Um, we, we, we accept all pronunciations, Sotheby's International Realty. Southabee's International Realty. So Joan, now that I've flubbed that, we'll go ahead and welcome you in. Uh, thanks for, for joining us. Uh, Thank you for having me, Dean. So let's start a little bit with uh, your journey and background. You've been here for quite a while, but uh, not originally, I believe, from this area. Talk a little bit about kind of how you got to the upstate and uh, specifically to being a realtor here in in uh, Greenville area? Well, let's see. My husband, William, and I moved here in 1989. And at that time, people only moved to Greenville if they were marrying it or if they were moving home. And so I guess you could say I arguably married it. Uh, my husband is from a little town in South Carolina called Saluda, which is about Oh, an hour and a half from Greenville and about 40 minutes from Columbia um, in the middle of the state. And he never thought that he would be moving back to Greenville um, after he left for college. We met at the University of Virginia. And um, at that time, my mother did say she didn't want me to go to the University of Virginia because it wasn't a Catholic school. I'm one of 12 and I'm the only one of the 12 who went to a quote unquote public school. Um, and my mother said, you know, if you go to that school, you're gonna end up meeting some Southern Protestant boy and living in the South for the rest of your life. And she was quite prescient, I guess. Um, but anyway, we were living in uh, Washington DC at the time, just outside of Washington in Arlington, Virginia. And my husband was working for what you would call a white shoe law firm, very prestigious, but, um, uh, he didn't get any time off. He was a bucket toter for a very prestigious law firm. And after missing um, two family vacations that I took the kids on anyway, we started thinking, you know, maybe this is not the life for us. And his sister and brother-in-law, who are married attorneys, um, had looked at the Weich law firm at the time, but Weich would not hire a married couple. Um, because it would just change the dynamic of, of the eventual partnership. But they were very impressed with it. And they said to William, oh, you really need to look at this, this law firm, it's top drawer, long story less long. That's what brought us to Greenville in 1989. And it was a very different place. I would say that my family, our, our four children have grown up with Greenville in many ways. When I looked at Greenville in May of 1989 for just a day because I was pregnant with our third child at the time. Downtown was, uh, it was mostly boarded up. The Woolworths was still open. 
the Hyatt existed and the Peace Center was underway. Um, there were a lot, a lot of phones downtown and it was very underwhelming. But the Weich Law Firm was very integrally um, involved in the development of downtown, the public-private partnership that really revitalized our downtown. And it also, um, after the, the day-long tour of Greenville and the real estate and the neighborhoods, it seemed like a wonderful place to raise a family. And um, one of the things that was important to William was the public schools. And the public schools were and are strong. 90% of the families here um, send their kids to public school. And a lot of times out-of-towners like myself um, don't associate South Carolina with really strong public schools. Um, and I would like to emphasize that Greenville is the exception to that misperception. Um, Greenville has always had um, strong support from the community, from the business community for its public schools. And um, our kids all went to public school here and they all turned out to be taxpayers with um, no police records that we're aware of. <laughs> that, that, that's a, a good stamp for a mother right there. You go. <laughs> uh, um, so you guys got here in 1989 and mm -hmm. you had young children at the time, which of course is a, a job and a half. Um, how did you end up in the, the real estate business? Um, I, when my youngest was uh, a year old, uh, I'd been staying at home um, and doing some freelance writing during that time, but that was just sort of pin money or what I would call mad money. I wasn't really uh, significantly contributing to the family coffers. And when William was in law school, I was the sole breadwinner. And then I worked part-time um, until my second, our second child was born. And um, working part-time is sort of like the worst of both worlds in my, in my experience as, as a working mom, working outside the home. And so when our second child was born in 1986, I said I wanted to stay home full-time with the kids, even if it meant that we could only afford to eat macaroni and cheese and become sort of default vegetarians. Um, and, and that was wonderful. I don't regret that at all. It was, um, life comes in phases and that was a wonderful phase. But when the youngest was one, I, I found that I had grown tired of um, being underestimated. And I, I fault myself for allowing other people's um, opinions of what I was doing at the time to affect me, but it did. Um, moms who are staying at home full time are chronically underestimated. They are treated as though they, their brains have turned to mush, which on some days was true by about 2 p.m. Um, and they are asked to be the chief volunteer of everything that comes down the pike. So I was, I was tired of being underestimated, underappreciated, and, um, and, and frankly, sort of overwhelmed. So I, I, I told William, when the youngest was one, that I, I wanted to find something different. And uh, to his great credit, he has never second guessed anything that I have wanted to do after we've had kids. When I wanted to, when I, I worked full time to support our eating habit when he was in law school and we had our, our first child, Jack. And um, he didn't object when I said, well, now I wanna work part time. 
And he didn't object when I said I wanted to stay home. And he certainly didn't object when I said, I want to go back. Um, I had this idea that I could do real estate part-time. And I will say that I'm probably 97% of realtors are part-time. Um, but after a month in it, I said to my then broker in charge, you said I could do this part-time. And he said, um, I said that you could, but with your personality, it doesn't seem to be working out that way. I have always been full-time. Um, but I liked real estate as an option because it enabled me to maintain my own schedule and be the captain of my own ship, so to speak. And I didn't have to ask anybody for permission to go to a parent-teacher conference, to take my child to the orthodontist, to stay home for five days if I had a sick child. Um, there's a lot of flexibility, but it's you're also um, you're at the beck and call of your clients, and it meant working a lot of evenings and weekends when people aren't otherwise working. And I could not have done that without the full support of, of my husband. And he, I wouldn't say that he took to it like a duck to water, it was a big change, um, but, but he was very supportive. And um, he, he's always celebrated my success and um, we've always celebrated each other's successes. And, he was a great dad. Um, he is a, a smart dad in that he understands that it is impossible to babysit for your own children. It's called taking care of your children. A lot of dads out there will say, oh, I have to babysit. Well, really, who's, who's paying you? But um, I, I went into it because my, in spite of the fact that my mother was in it, um, she went into real estate when I was 17 and made me absolutely despise the whole concept of real estate because she was kind of obsessed with it. And um, I'm not. I love real estate, but I'm not obsessed with anything. Except maybe maybe sometimes um, one of those little cokes. I, I like those a lot. <laughs> so... Um... Now, in, in the time you've, you've been, so what year was that when you started doing real estate? 1993. Early 1993. My youngest was born in 92, June of 92. And I uh, got my real estate license, I think in July or August of 93. So almost 30 years when you started here, um, you know, what was the, the market in the upstate? You know, that was around the time that BMW was coming to yes. the region and textiles yeah. were, were yeah. really disappearing, um, uh, you know, from, from a manufacturing standpoint. So what was the market like then? And then talk about how it has evolved to, to where it exists today in, in 2021. Well, at that time, I mean, that was, that was pre-internet. So, you know, everything, we, we had these big books that would be printed monthly to tell you what was on the market and you'd have to to, it was sort of like the yellow pages of, of real estate. And then you'd have these other big books, which was everything that had sold uh, during the, the previous quarter. Those would come out quarterly. So it was, it was very, um, gosh, so rudimentary compared to how readily information is available. The other thing that, that happened that was a radical change that everybody sort of accepts as, um, uh, as normal now um, but one of the radical changes that occurred just as I had 
um, about a year after I got my license was the whole concept of buyer agency. And I remember when I, when I bought my first home in 19, let's see, we bought our first home in 1986 and that was in the Washington DC area. And um, one of my sisters is also a realtor in the Chicago area and she still is. And she came with me to do house hunting. And um, at one point she asked me what I thought of our realtor. And I said, well, I really don't like her shoes. But I, she was like, don't talk about what she looks like. Talk about what she's bringing to the table. Do you, do you like her? Do you feel like she's a good guide? Do you feel like she's giving you information? And I was just clueless. I was clueless, clueless about the, what my expectations even should have been. But what was really interesting was we saw this one house that I ended up buying and I loved that house so much. Trust me, there is a point to this long Byzantine story. I loved the house so much that when we got back in the car, I said to this realtor, I love that house so much, I think I'm gonna marry it. Um, and I think that we can afford it, but if we can't, then I'm gonna call my parents and see if they'll help us with the down payment. And my sister hauled off and kicked me in the back seat. And I was like, ow. And then she um, pulled me out of the car and she said to the realtor, can we have a moment? And it's like something out of TV. And we were standing in the front yard and the realtor's in the car with the, and she's like hissing at me, my sister is. And she said, you never ever tell your realtor that you like the house. You never ever tell her that you're willing to pay full price. And I said, but, but why not? And she said, she works for the seller. And so at that time, right up until the early nineties, all realtors only worked for the seller. And of course I had this impression that this person is driving me around. She's showing me property. She's telling me what she knows about these various neighborhoods. Um, I thought she was working for me. I thought that she had my best interest at heart. And of course, I didn't file it, but that kind of impression where, gee, I thought somebody was working for me. And it turns out that that somebody that I thought was working for me was feeding all of this information that I thought was confidential to the seller or to the seller's agent, because they're all working for the seller. They're working against me. And, you know, it generated some lawsuit. And that's where a, a lot of, um, the courts basically generate a lot of the policies that we operate under today that everybody's like, well, of course you have a buyer agent. And uh, the misnomer, the um, misunderstanding, misperception that a lot of people have now is that, oh, if you have a buyer agent today, it's, it's free. And I'm, I'm doing those little air quotation marks. Um, it's not free. The seller is, putting the property on the MLS with a listing agent and they are offering a co-broke commission to the buyer agent. And that, that varies, that amount varies. There is no set rate. And um, a lot of people think, well, the seller's paying for that. Therefore, I'm getting buyer agency for free. Well, you're not getting it for free because you're giving the money to the seller who's turning around and divvying up the money at closing. 
But the fact is the buyer agent, if, if he or she is doing his job, the buyer agent's job is to make sure that the buyer is making a fully informed decision. What I like to say to my buyers is, I, it's my job to make sure that you don't unknowingly overpay. If you wanna overpay, that is your business, but I'm gonna make sure that you know that I think that you are, that you're making that mistake. Um, back in the day, before buyer agency, it might be that, um, you know, Dean, if you were, if you were the buyer, um, you could have said to your, your buyer agent, Jane Doe, Jane, I, you know, I love this house and I know they're asking 200,000 and, you know, I'll, I'll pay 205 if I have to, to get this house because this checks all the boxes. Well, unbeknownst to you back in the day, your buyer agent, Jane Doe, was turning around and literally saying to the listing agent, well, look, we're going to start at 195, but Trust me, I can get this guy above list price uh, if, you're, um, if your seller wants me to. And, and you're clueless to all that. That could never happen now. And I, I will say that when buyer agency came down the pike and um, people had designated representation, a lot of the older agents at that time had a hard time making that transition. And they had a hard time understanding what confidential meant. Um, so yeah, that was one of the radical changes, the advent of the internet, which was the what late nineties. Um, I was actually the first agent in Greenville to have her own website. And I did because I was, um, I was competing for a listing that was owned by a very good friend of, of ours. And to his credit, he made me compete for the listing. And, um, he said to me, why don't you have a website? Why don't any of you realtors have a website? And I was like, what's a website? And um, if that's what it took to get the listing, I did it. And so we, um, William helped me create a website. It was the first agent website um, in, in Greenville. And you know, now it's sort of, everybody's got their own website, you know, their company website, their personal website. But th there has been so much technological change that now the question that some buyers have is, well, if I have all this information at my fingertips, um, why don't I just do this myself and forego um, having a, a buyer agent at all? And of course they always have that option, but, um, and I also have the option to clean my teeth every day and never go see a dental hygienist. I also have the option to go to legal Zoom and write my own will but I love my children. And so I had it done correctly by an expert. There's no substitute for expertise. Right, so let's talk real quick about kind of the, the market now in Greenville and the upstate. Um, you know, the, the, uh, the housing market has, you know, had its ebbs and flows. It was certainly a, a contributor to the, a big contributor uh, to to uh, the economic, uh, you know, recession in the late two uh, thousands. Definitely uh, a pivotal contributor. Yes, it's been moving up uh, pretty much in the last you know few years, and especially in this area, given that um, you know this is a region with um, you know a pretty robust economy um, that has done very well 
even in some of the times of economic struggle. What are you seeing today? And, um, you know, most especially, and I know you, you uh, range in, in houses, uh, you know, a lot of houses in the higher end market, but what are you seeing for, especially for people who are moving to this area or who are, are first time home buyers and things? How is this market, you know, for someone who is new to, to the area or new to uh, owning a home? Well, as you know, COVID radically changed the market. Um, and so did the low interest rates. I mean, we have historically low interest rates. It's like 1950s money when you think about it. And we have, um, it created sort of a perfect storm of low interest rates and low inventory. And the reason that that happened is because when you got really low interest rates, it doesn't just inspire people to buy. It inspires a lot of other people as in homeowners to say, oh, I think I'll refinance. But it doesn't really make sense to refinance unless you're going to stay put for at least two to five years because there are costs associated with the, the refinance process. So if I refinance my house, I'm basically saying I'm not going to be in the market for at least two years. So that takes a lot of would-be inventory off, you know, away from the table. And then when you've got low interest rates, you've also got all these people saying, I'll be in now. And and buy because um, I'm gonna my my buying power is so much greater now than it might be say five years from now. So you've got this sort of perfect storm of low inventory, low interest rates, high demand, and particularly um, let me backtrack a little bit. We do de deal with high end properties, but that's certainly not the only thing that we deal with. I mean my own lowest price listing right now is about two and a quarter. Um, all of our clients get top door service. Luxury is not a price point, it's an experience. They get the luxury of our full attention um, and unparalleled client service. And we cover the upstate from Spartanburg all the way to the Georgia border on the west side. And you know as far south as uh, Lawrence County, uh, all the way up to Caesars Head. So we cover the whole upstate. And while yes, we do command the luxury market, we don't rule anybody out. We deal with all kinds of buyers and sellers. So I wanna, I wanna make that clear. Um, for first time home buyers, it's tough. It's tough. There are actually more realtors today than there is inventory. Um, and if you're a first time home buyer, and I used to define that a million years ago as, you know, for example, up to 200K, but now a first-time home buyer could be, you know, up to 500k. That is what I call a crabs in a barrel, um, a crabs in a barrel situation because you've got all these people um, clamoring for the same piece of property, and it, it's a pressure cooker. You're in a competitive situation, so if you don't have all your ducks in a row, um, you're just going to be disappointed repeatedly. And also, if your agent if your buyer agent doesn't know what the heck they're doing, you're at a, a, a built-in disadvantage. Um, one of my associates um, won in a bidding war just this week, and it was uh, first-time home buyers, FHA loan. A lot of sellers don't want to deal with people who have to get an FHA loan because when you're dealing with government money with an FHA loan or a VA loan, 
the uh, appraiser can require the seller to do repairs that are not contractually required, but they're required in order to get financing. And a lot of sellers are like, I don't want to deal with that, particularly in a seller's market like this. Um, but she had all of her ducks in a row, made a very um, solid offer with terms that um, the terms were so strong of their offer that her client, her buyer won out and the seller turned out another offer that was actually higher in terms of the price. So it's not just price, it's price and terms. And she, um, I always love giving my, my associates a pat on the back, but she gets in a special uh, pat on the back, Aileen does, because the listing agent said that the other offer that almost won didn't because Aileen was calm, she was buttoned up, she was professional, and the competing agent was not. You know, we're, it can be a very emotional thing, particularly when you're in this sort of pressure cooker environment. And an effective agent is the calm in the storm. And when you've got, when you're dealing with an agent who is taking everything personally, making everything personal, and just sort of ratcheting up the, um, the temperature on things, they're, they're, not, um, they're not facilitating a deal. They're, they're making themselves a problem. And my associate Aileen won out because she avoided those pitfalls. And I'd like to think it's because she's got such stellar training. Um, <laughs> anyway, next question. Well, great. Well, let's wrap up uh, with a, a series of rapid fire questions. And, and sure. uh, so um, I'll uh, ask a question and just give me, you know, 15, 20 seconds uh, for each one. So the first one, what is something you learned and still use today from a mentor or past colleague? Uh, great question. Um, my first mentor was um, David Krigler. He was my broker in charge, and he's now the COO at Berkshire Hathaway C. Dan Joyner. And he taught by example to let good agents do good work by getting the heck out of their way. Just get out of the way. If you're going to hire the best people, you don't have to micromanage them. You, you already know that they're going to give you their best work and do the best work. So get out of their way. He had this one guy who was sort of an assistant broker for a while, and I'm not going to name his name, but that guy, I would avoid going to the office if I saw that guy there because he kept like buttonholing me and being like, can we talk about your quality of life? And I was like, I don't have time to talk about my quality of life. I've got to turn into a turn in a contract and go pick up one of my kids. Leave me alone. And um, David showed by example that the best way to lead sometimes is from behind. Have your people's back, but don't be telling them what to do all the time. Don't get in their way. So what is one observation or lesson that you would share with someone that you're serving as a, a mentor for? You mean that you're the mentor and they're a mentee. Okay. Well, I'm mentoring about, you know, 40 people right now. So um, I guess the one lesson is that I, I cannot afford to ever say, do as I say and not as I do. Uh, you can't get away with that when you're running a company. Um, you have to um, make sure that what you say in writing is the same as what you do 
And um, there's a very short list of realtors out there that I'll take their word for things. And they know who they are. I've got a great relationship with, with many of my colleagues at other companies, but there's a much longer list of realtors that I can't take what they say um, to the bank. I've got to have everything in writing. And I think a lot of those know who they are too. Um, you don't get a second chance to make a first impression. And um, I, I will have my associates' backs a thousand percent when they're doing the right thing. But when, when they're not, and I have to find that out the hard way, then, then they're telling me that they're, they're going to be happier in another environment. So if you were emperor for a day, what emperor is one, for a day? <laughs> emperor for a day. What is one thing about your job or sector that you would change or or do different? Oh my gosh, I would raise the bar. I would so raise the bar, Dean. I would um, you know, there's a there's a terrible barrier to entry to becoming a teacher um, in most states. It they make it so hard for people to become teachers. And they make it so easy for people to become real estate agents. And I would like to see them raise the bar. Um, I would like to see, um, you know, the continuing education that we have to take is good and it's technically graded, but not really. Um, I, I, would, I would like to see them raise the fees, raise the bar um, so that we can begin to call this a true profession. It's, there is no barrier to entry. And, um, you know, most realtors are not working full time, but those realtors who are just dabbling are the ones that um, are giving the industry the, um, the low profile impression that it, that it often has. And that's a shame. Okay. Uh, what is one thing you want to make sure you accomplish before your career is over? Ooh, well, that depends upon when my career is over. Um, you know, if I get hit by a bus today, I, I would like to say that I've accomplished everything I wanted up to this point. Um, what do I want to accomplish um, before my career is over? I guess when, before my career is over, I want to make sure that I've, I've got a good exit strategy in place. I'm still working on that. And I, I think that a lot of people in this industry don't give any thought to a real estate and uh, to, to their exit strategy. And if I were just to you know, drop the mic and walk out tomorrow, that would be leaving a lot of people in the lurch. It would undermine a company that I've worked very hard to build. And I would never do that. I would never do that. So I guess, um, I guess what I'd like to have before my career ends is a, an exit strategy that I put together with my colleagues in this company so that everybody knows what is going to happen, when it's going to happen, how it's going to happen. And we're all on the same page and it's a smooth transition. Um, I, my epitaph is not going to say, I wish I spent more time at the office. Um, I'm 62 years old, and I don't think that I'll be doing this 10 years from now, but I will be if it's still fun, um, but I'll be doing it in a different way, probably more 10 years from now, probably more in a consulting um, uh, 
position rather than in the trenches, because I am definitely in the trenches every day, still listing and selling and serving my own personal clients as well as the company's clients. So last one, um, mm -hmm. we, always hear, we always hear people talk about what keeps them up at night, but what about your job gets you up in the morning? <laughs> I am not a morning person. Um, it, it's, it's hard to get me up in the morning. Um, what keeps me awake at night is things that I forgot to, to um, boxes I forgot to check the, the previous day, things that I have to do. But um, um, what gets me out of bed in the morning is the fact that um, when I go to the office, when I roll in, I always look forward to it. I, I love the people I work with. And it's always interesting and fun to just interact with the people at the office. You know, I'm in an industry where if you're hanging out at the office, it means that you're not busy. So when people are at the office, it's mean, it means that they are about to meet with a client or they're turning in some paperwork or they're, they're picking up some materials or they've just met with a client or they wanna confer with somebody else about a client situation. So there's not a lot of hanging out and chewing the fat. Um, it's, it's a dynamic environment and, um, I, that's what gets me out of bed every day because I look forward, it doesn't feel like work. You know, the, the luckiest guy, luckiest woman in the world is, is somebody like me who feels like they're getting paid to go fishing because it doesn't feel like work. Perfect. Well, Joan, thank you so much for taking some time. I've enjoyed it and it's been neat to get a little bit of an insight into your your industry it is definitely a, a field that at some point we all you know work with with someone uh who is a realtor and and uh you know ha have different uh experiences and it's interesting to kind of hear some of the the background and some of the the, the uh evolution of of what what's happened and how you're moving forward with with your company well i appreciate your your time and your interest dean and um uh, I, I hope I don't sound 12 when I hear the recording. I never like the sound of my voice. I guess none of your guests ever do. <laughs> well, with that, uh, I want to thank uh, our audience for joining us for this edition of Upstate Gems. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure and like us on your podcast app and tell your friends. You can also check out the Ten at the Top podcast channel for new episodes of Upstate Gems, as well as our other podcasts, Start, Grow, Upstate, and the Upstate Mobility Alliance.